This technology will fuel stuff that will be smart city initiatives, not for the city, but citizen-centered smart city infrastructure. Welcome to episode 459 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rai Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. A couple of months ago, we wrote about the city of Tucson's efforts to bridge the digital divide by building a wireless citywide network. Today, Christopher talks with Colin Boyce, the city's chief information officer, to hear about how the effort got started, what they've learned along the way, and the impact it's having on the community. Colin tells us about their efforts to bring service to the tens of thousands of Tucson residents who either didn't have options for or couldn't afford internet access. He talks about building a hybrid CBRS and LoRaWAN network from the ground up, leveraging existing fiber infrastructure to bridge the digital divide, but also expand the city's tools to get smarter, reduce pollution, and increase utility efficiency. Now here's Christopher talking with Colin. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'm coming to you again from St. Paul, the better of the two cities. Today, I'm speaking with Colin Bryce, the Chief Information Officer for the City of Tucson. Welcome to the show, Colin. Hi, how are you doing, Christopher? And small correction, my name is Colin Boyce. But Boyce? I, yes, yeah, that's what I wrote I'm down. Ex- Colin Boyce, but obviously my mouth <laughs> misinterpreted that. <laughs> oh, no, it's perfectly fine. Um, I'm super excited to be here today. And uh, my previous stint was up in Michigan. So, you know, it's always great to talk to folks in the Midwest. And I'm hoping some of the stuff that we're doing here in sunny Tucson makes it over, you know, to the middle part of this country. I think it's uh, cool to be able to provide some of the services and how this would ignite some of the smart city stuff that. You know, I know a lot of cities are struggling with. Yes, I think it is. I mean, I think you have had remarkable coverage of what you're doing and well-deserved because of how aggressive and innovative you've been. Uh, I feel like we should note that you and I have a common bond. You being from Lansing previously means that you're also probably not a huge fan of Michigan. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) Big Ten country up here. Um, (laughs) I was just speaking yesterday with someone who um, we're doing an interview and he went off on how he does not like Ohio State's football team. And I'm like, man, you're making friends right now. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I, I spent a lot of time right off of MSU's campus. So I went to church out there and, you know, green and white, it's kind of cool. Um, so I do like green and white more than I like blue and, blue and yellow and uh, red and white. But growing up in Brooklyn, right, there's almost no uh, college teams, right? And right. I always ask the question, in the city, what college teams exist? And no one can ever answer it. The answer to the question is, is St. John's University, which is also red and white. And it's just a basketball team, right? That's how we got folks like Chris Mullen. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, growing up in the city, you're more about pro sports. um, But living right off of the MSU's campus, the energy, and it was just a cool environment. And it helped foster some of this creative thinking that I think that you're seeing exercised here in Tucson. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, I, I definitely think it is very creative. What what exactly is the plan for what you're doing in Tucson? And then after we get a sense of what it's what it's building toward, then you can tell us where you are right now. I'm going to first talk about why we did what we did, right? So uh, for those that are not aware, um, we built probably the first 
LTE network that's owned by a municipal government of consequence in the country. So there may be one or two nodes that have stood up in other places. I know um, Las Vegas has something, it's a little bit smaller in footprint um, than we're doing, and it's not as wide and has many people connected. But why we wanted to do it? Well, last year around March, when the pandemic picked up, I was hunkered down in Pennsylvania, East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, right outside of New York City. I've actually and spent a lot of time there. I have I have friends up there. I grew up in Allentown myself, so I'm familiar uh, yeah, with so you. Yeah, yeah. So we're there. My mother-in-law passed unfortunately, and my kids were teleschooling from the New York area back into Arizona. And it hit me. I'm like, there's some people who don't have internet connectivity, and we did uh, some census looked up some census information and it's somewhere close to 30% around that time had no internet connectivity. And we realized that we wanted to partner with the local telecommunications providers, but there's not everywhere that's going to have coverage. Trailer parks, for example, are really hard to get coverage in. Um, there's certain parts of town they're just not motivated to build because there's scarce resources. And so we wanted to build this, this network. And so the roadmap behind this network when I sat down with council and approached them was, is that this network can be a win-win-win, right? And it's not often that you get projects that are three wins. So we could address some of the digital divide problems we have. So today we have about close to a thousand people connected, um, a little bit short of a thousand people connected and we can, we can handle more and we're gonna continue to add folks to it. Uh, but we can also fuel some of the smart city stuff that we wanted to do in. Know, can give you a variety of stuff. Anything from wireless and buses, we're, we're experimenting with that right now. We have employees that have access at home who are city employees. We're connecting traffic signals and IoT devices. We were able to do public Wi-Fi in parks, piggybacking on the same network. Uh, we're talking about connecting city vehicles, which we haven't done yet. Body cams for public safety so they can do real-time streaming. So it's not cost prohibitive. We're talking about doing that. And probably one of the more exciting things in our own cell phone service. Um, not necessarily for citizens at the moment, but what we're looking at is their city functions where people are only inside of city limits. Mm -hmm. And so we are... I was just going to say, for people who, yeah. are, who are just hearing the, uh, the audio, we're seeing an unboxing as, as Colin's describing this. <laughs> yeah, so you have a Galaxy S20, and we throw our SIM card in it, and it will connect to the city's phone system, and you can place calls with the native app right on our phone system, and we can use it as kind of a regional play, right? So it will help us uh, with cost avoidance. So here's the win, right? The first win is we get to help our citizens. Second win, we're addressing some of the smart city stuff that we need to do. And the third win is we can avoid costs where we're spending dollars right now that's leaving outside of the city. We could take those dollars and funnel it back into the city and reinvest into our own network and continue to expand on it. And so this was pretty exciting. And to be blunt, you know, I tripped on LTE, right? I initially started off, I wanted to do Wi-Fi. The number of Wi-Fi that everyone uses I was talking to a gentleman named Bruce Hart from the Bit Insight Group, and he's like, you should look at LTE. And he was talking about going into the PAL auctions and discovered CBRS. And it was like, this is the way to go. I stumbled yeah. across it. And, you know, Alan Ewing, you know, he was great with getting me started and giving me the primers and how to do it. And, you know, from there, it's the, it's all history. So, so for people who are not as familiar, Tucson 
you got a large city. You got half a million people, more than that. I, I always forget how big you are. And within that, a lot of times people in bigger cities say that people don't have access. They mean people can't afford the access that's there. But you're saying there are significant gaps of even access, where even if people have the money, they can't get service in the city. Yeah, yeah. Uh, part of it is we are fairly large, right? So the city is somewhere close to about 300 square miles, uh, but 150 square miles of it is populated. And the rest of it is predominantly what we would call pack rats and rattlesnakes. And because of that, there's uh, pockets where service providers don't want to build in a, they just don't build in those areas. And this will allow us to provide some connectivity to those folks who don't have viable options that are doing stuff like one meg DSL or dial-up, still exists inside of Tucson. Um, The other thing that we realize is just what you talked about, which is there's some people who can't afford access. And what we found out was cell phone service or internet connectivity. When you live in a desert, cell phones are more important than internet connectivity. If your car breaks down on the side of the road, it's more important that you can call someone to get you out of the hot sun than it's going to be, you know, can little Billy, you know, pull up something on the internet Mm -hmm. for homework. Now, this is all facilitated then by a widespread fiber optic network that the city already had to connect its own institutions and things like that. Yeah. So we have somewhere close to about 500 to 700 miles of a fiber optic network, um, not counting strands, but routes, different routes that we have. And it connects buildings, it connects parks, it goes through some of the library systems. And so when we, we went into the project, what we wanted to go after was really easy wins. And, you know, this is a hard project with a tight timetable, and we really went after easy wins. So we looked at what buildings were tall enough that we can throw stuff on the top and have connectivity. One of those like 40 to 70 feet? Yeah, yeah. We're, so we're right around 70 feet, in some cases even taller. So we have an apartment complex that has um, ACD housing, and it's a, a rather tall building. And we use this as a beaconing point to provide connectivity to community, but we're also providing connectivity inside of that building. So it was a double win in that sense. We looked at areas that already had great communication, um, you know, monopoles and communication type devices, and we utilized those for all of our connectivity. And so really, it was mounting radios and pulling fiber in the structures. And it was, it was really simple for us to do what we did here. You say that, (laughs) you know, in my experience, uh, the office of a CIO often is more um, geared up toward dealing with software and, and helping manage records and things like that. Did you, did you hire contractors? Did you have staff that you could work with? How did you manage this just in terms of the kind of skills that people had to have? So fortunately for, uh, for the city, I guess, or for me, is that I have a strong networking background as well as an application background. So at one point in time, I was studying for, for those that are familiar, the CCIE written was on my roadmap. I am a, I'm a Unix guy. <laughs> um, you don't hear that very often. So I've compiled kernels and, you know, from Debian all the way into Solaris Spark. Um, I have that background. So I do have a background on the hardware side as well as on the software side. And so a lot of the architecting of the network was done by me. Three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, I'm studying (laughs) up on CBRS and I'm understanding how the SaaS providers are. I'm reaching out to SaaS providers and I'm creating this this booklet of information. And I know we're talking to somewhat of a, uh, a technical group here. So even stuff on dense wave division multiplexing and how Rotom works 
you know, I architected some of that into this network um, in order to make it run. <laughs> this is like a passion project for you. I mean, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah. I've been in the industry for, you know, I started around 93, 94, when I dropped out of college, Fairleigh Dickinson University, and I eventually went back and finished up. But for my career, there's a few projects that are a highlight. This is probably, in my opinion, the most fun project I've ever had. It has the biggest impact for citizens and it has the biggest impact for the future of the city. This is, when you say passion project, I think it hits the nail right on the head. So you're you're kind of in the middle of it right now. Is that accurate? Like uh, you finished oh, no, phase we're winding one? down. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah, we so. finished phase one. Um, we haven't started phase two yet. We're in the planning for phase two. So phase one, where we ended up, was there's a lot of easy wins and the easy wins. So 80% of the network was built in somewhere close to 60 to 90 days. The last portion of it was there is another 10 poles or so that we had to stand up. And the challenges came with, you know, there were Native American burial grounds that we had to navigate around and we didn't want to disturb remains. We had to get clearances from historical societies or figure out where those were so we can avoid them. Um, but we did erect somewhere close to 10, 15 monopoles. And so, you know, most of the network is built. And I'm going to point out, we did more than CBRS. And I know the CBRS network is what's getting a lot of light. We also did um, what's called Laurelland. Um, are you familiar with the term Laurelland, low-powered wide area networking? Yeah, we actually just did an interview a few weeks ago with someone from Nebraska that specialized in it across the state. Oh, I got to go check out that interview. We are doing... Uh, LoRaWAN SimTech technology as well on top of it. So there's two networks that we're deploying in conjunction in order to fuel what we want to do here. Excellent. So what is your, in the case of the LoRaWAN in Nebraska, it's about all of these sensors that um, that can be difficult to communicate with. I mean, in, in it, we talked about, I've, I've had my personal experience with using um, wireless gear that's close to the ground and the ground just sucks up all the signal and you just yeah. can't communicate with it. So what are, what are you using? The, what, is, what is the useful long-range aspect of it for you? So everything from pollution sensors to um, a backup for the, some of the traffic signals to be able to connect. Um, we have lots of pools here, so we want to start doing even little silly things like if you want to see what the temperature is of the public pool that's outside, you can pick it up on your phone and tell at a moment's notice. So everything from parking sensors to traffic and pollution to fun applications for the citizens are all in the roadmap. Um, the traffic one, the parking one is one that's interesting. So the, the cool part about the LP WAN technology is the battery life is super long. You probably are aware of that. You can get a battery that lasts 22 years. And I read somewhere that there's a study that we spend on average, I want to say 17 hours a year looking for parking. And one of the things that we're looking at doing now is burying the sensors where we have parking spots. And so it can detect a car above it. And you can pull up an app that we're developing now where you can see where the open parking spots are inside of the city. So no longer are you looking for a parking spot. You know where they're at. And now it's just a foot race. Can you get there? <laughs> right. And that saves also then um, there's a significant amount of, of pollution that comes from people driving around in circles trying to find that spot. Absolutely. Right. So and so we're looking at these two technologies or oh, another use case that may not matter as much when you're in the Midwest because there's plenty of water there. We're in a desert. We're trying to move to 
wireless meter readings for the water bill because we have our own water company. And so by enabling that feature, if someone has what we call a trickle system or a drip system, in your, it'll be a sprinkler system in your universe that has a leak and they're losing water, we can find out pretty quickly and cut off that water and send mm-hmm. them alerts that they have a leak. Um, and saving water inside of a desert is super important. So, you know, this technology, both from the LTE and the low power and wide area network will fuel stuff that will be smart city initiatives, not for the city, but citizen-centered smart city infrastructure. And that is probably the most exciting part about this for me. Okay, so let's go back though for a second. What kind of challenges have you faced? You seem like the kind of person who sees a challenge, figures out how to get around it, and then you forget that you had that challenge to begin with. But but tell me, like, what are some of the challenges you had to overcome? There's a few challenges. So I'm going to talk about the tech challenges because there's not very many of those. Uh, the technology challenge that we had to deal with is that you're aware CBRS is heavily regulated by the FCC. So you can't crank up the signal. And for those who are aware of the technology, if you think of a sine wave, um, as you go higher in frequency, the penetration through large objects or big objects becomes harder. So you need more power to do it. So that's probably the largest technical challenge. We can't penetrate. So once you hit a CBRS signal hits a building, you're going to end up with shadows on the other side. So you have to stand up more towers to fight the shadow. Technology, just put up more towers, hopefully not going to let the FCC adjust what they're doing there and we can crank up the system a little bit. Are you finding, though, that just while we're on that for a second, are you finding that you can deliver good coverage within the building or are you finding that some buildings are are kind of shielding people inside the building from that signal too much? We are finding that the buildings are shielding and that's part of what our phase two discussion is. So our phase two discussion is how do we get people who applied looking at the propagation and addressing the shielding problems that we have with different buildings. And then the last part of phase two is we understood that we had to put signals up in parks and monopoles up in some parks inside of the city. And we're saying for those parks, we want to start to provide free Wi-Fi, not LTE, but regular Wi-Fi service Mm -hmm. as a service for those parks because we're adding additional uh, infrastructure there. Okay, so you said you designed a lot of the the network and things like that, but I'm still curious, like who goes up on the pole and installs the equipment and and who's like out there to roll a truck if something goes wrong? Oh, yes. So we partnered with um, Insight and Insight subcontracted to a company called Tilson. And Tilson has this amazing track record of building carriers networks. So they work for Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile. Those are guys and they build it. And so they're doing all of the mounting and scaling of, of poles. And if something breaks, we're providing, we're working with a local provider to then remove radios and reinstall radios. Okay. So you didn't have to add that capacity to your team, really? No, no, no. Matter of fact, I would say we added no capacity at all for anything on that network uh, because the core provider that we're partnering with is a company called Geoverse. And Geoverse, they're well known because Altel was their network and they sold it to Altel, which eventually became Verizon. Um, so they have all the carrier relationships. They manage all of the core stuff for us. And they're my second tier for tech support. And so I was taking my first wave and they hand it off to, um, to Geoverse and Geoverse handles the second wave. So today, this entire network, our ongoing cost for the city for what we've built covering right around 30, 40 square miles is a whopping 
300000 a year, $400,000 a year in maintenance. That's it. And and what I saw was estimates that it was on the order of like four or five million dollars, mostly supplied by CARES Act funding. That that was uh, the capital cost of getting it going. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, I'm probably one of the rare CIOs in the country where I avoid subscription based type stuff in general because what happens inside of the cities or in cities in general, we're funded by different sources. If your study is funded by property tax, that revenue is a little bit more stable. Mm-hmm. But the city of Tucson is funded by sales tax and sales tax. If there's a bad year or there's a recession that takes place, you can have, you know, part in the analogy, right? You can have feast or famine, drought or um, tons of rain. Mm-hmm. In our case, we didn't want that. We had a drought or a dry spell and we have to turn off services. That would be unfortunate. So we went with subscription. So it brings our operational costs really low. So a $5 million investment, we're only spending 300000 a year. 300000 a year is something that we could absorb pretty easily. If I remember correctly, you said there's on the order of like 30,000 people that were lacking service. You have 1,000 a, a people that are signed up. Is that, is that a win? Um, what's, the, what's kind of the goal and, and what's the capacity of what you're building? So what we have right now can support more than 50,000 people. And the 1,000 people connected is a win. Um, the question is, was it the win that we were looking for? So council today is no, it's not the win that they were looking for. Um, they, we were hoping to get 5,000 people in. My next challenge, right, is that if you're advertising something like this, you know, having someone who knows how to get it to the root level inside of your organizations or your, your cities is important. And that's where we, I kind of missed the mark. I went on TV shows. I did podcasts. I did a ton of work to, to get the word out. But what I discovered was I'm part of two household of faiths here. So I'm a saxophonist and I'll go to two different Seventh-day Adventist churches and I play my sax on Saturday mornings, right? I alternate. And I spoke to both pastors and said, hey, did you know we were doing this program? And both of them said no. <laughs> and my mm-hmm. heart dropped because I realized that if your churches don't know, a lot of your community doesn't know. Um, and so we're about to do another round of advertising, connecting strategically to the locations that we know we have coverage, but we're going to connect with the local households of faith. Um, so the churches, we want to connect with um, the Boys and Girls Club partners. I, I always cringe when I see this in government, right? We're going to connect the big brothers and big sisters. I cringe because everyone thinks the government is big brother, big sister, but we're (laughs) connected to those organizations to get the word out for us. But we really want to connect with the organizations that are closer to the people. Today, what we did was we connected with the school districts and that helped us get some of the students on board. But, you know, we really want to connect to all the social groups in the community. And so we're planning a wave of targeted, um, advertising to get more people on board. I would say the win on our side is we have 3,000 people who have applied. We know where the weak spots are in the city where people need to get connectivity. We have it mapped out. We know how to address it. So as we start to do additional waves, we can start to figure it out. The wins are we have traffic signals that are being connected and we're trying to do now our prioritization and traffic signals. And this will allow us to do that. We're going to save money. So did we get what we wanted with the digital divide? I would say we got one third to a quarter of the people we expected to get. So were we disappointed by that? Yes, but it doesn't mean it was a bad investment. 
Yeah. And I mean, your experience is not unique. In fact, National Digital Inclusion Alliance is having a webinar next week, I think. Well, when this is airing, probably this week, I think it's on like May 12th, about how free internet access is not enough because a lot of people, um, it's hard to make them aware of it, um, gain their trust that it's not some kind of scam because uh, many people that are living on the edge have been scammed before and they have warnings defenses about it so um so i mean I, I think what you're talking about in terms of going through the communities of faith the the service organizations um that's going to get your numbers up i gotta think um yeah but and i would say even if i provide connectivity and i'm sure you heard my story of when i came here but connectivity is only one third of the puzzle so i i provide internet connectivity but you don't have a device to connect to it we haven't solved the problem yet so we provide a device, but we have no training that is readily accessible to the public so they can connect. Well, we haven't solved the problem yet, right? So to mm -hmm. really solve the problem, we have to push on all three fronts. And I think we can, right? I think COVID stinks in the sense that all of the stuff that it, the negative stuff that we had happened in this country across the world or across the world, right? But the positives are we understand now digital inclusion and why it's important. We understand now that it's important to get people devices and get, get them connected. And we understand now that there's a need for training in order for people to connect. And I think if we take those lessons learned, we can do a lot. And I would also make the argument that we are in Tucson, we're talking about this. The city of Tucson, we deployed you know, over a thousand machines to get people working from home. When underneath people's desks, there were old form factors um, that they were using. You know, what my appeal is, why even really push people back into that old form factor? Why not rip out the hard drives, make them re uh, readily accessible and give that to the community? Now, you have a fairly recent device that you know doesn't meet your business needs. And now you can have the community use that to have uh, connectivity. And it's more than just the city, right? It's everyone. If you look at all of the local businesses, there's a surplus in the hardware that we're going to see in the next six to eight months as people start to return back to work. Why not come up with a way to connect that to the community? One of the things that I found really interesting is that uh, I found in one of the places you mentioned that you were trying to develop a reference architecture so other cities could do this without staying up till three in the morning to figure out uh, DWDM or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so where can people find that and, and how has that come along? Well, I haven't finished that yet. Um, so I'm trying to put together the documentation for that. And so we still haven't finished the lessons learned exercise and I'm going to be working with the insight team to do that. And candidly, there's a lot of great providers out there. So we're going to make it readily, readily accessible from a municipal perspective, how to do it. Um, and matter of fact, I would say more than just municipal governments, because I'm talking to universities. I just got off the phone with Arizona State University, they're looking at doing a similar project mm -hmm. and we're going to collaborate on it. You know, and I've offered this to a few other cities. Um, while I can't spend all of my time um, helping other cities with something similar, I don't mind being part of a steering committee and helping people with, with solving some of this stuff and helping answer the questions. One of the questions you asked before was um, other roadblocks. The largest roadblock I think we dealt with is the incumbent service providers. And yeah. it's not, it's not the, the old school telecom companies because they didn't care very much. It's the cable companies. The cable companies will attack you and they are relentless. Um, 
they will try to shut down a program like this in a heartbeat because it's really about, you know, profiteering. It's not even partnership. It's about, you know, you know, we, we don't think the government should be in this space, even if there's a need. Right. They want to charge you per, per like traffic light, right? They want to charge you yeah. like for everything and figure they out how, I mean, I've seen, I've seen them and I was actually surprised at the vehemence that you've faced because I do feel like where cities have offered just sort of free services, they've often not felt as threatened. Um, and for whatever reason, man, they're really going after you, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, um, there's an axe to grind with me specifically. And initially when, when I saw what was happening, I, I was really quiet about it. And what I sent a, it was funny because I sent a, a meeting, an meeting, uh, an email to the city manager. And I said, you know, you know, all of the anger that I'm facing, it means that I'm getting into, to quote, I'm getting into good trouble, necessary trouble, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, that's going to be your largest thing, right? Uh, they don't want you to do that. Uh, I would encourage anyone, if you are not familiar, familiar with this website, it's called Broadband Now. Uh, I believe it's broadbandnow.com. That's right. You can see if your local state has any restrictions on if you can do these type of projects. And there's only like 22 locations that have some variants of restrictions. Arizona's yeah, they've updated it. 17 now, roughly. 17, okay. Yeah. And so that's important to check. It'll, it'll guide you in the process of becoming an internet service provider. And then candidly, one of the articles said, hey, this is one of the advantages of having local municipal government. What we saw was a cost communication, which is the, the difficult incumbent that we're dealing with. They are... They were only offering 10 megs or 15 megs um, for the people who were in that situation. Once we offered 50 megs, they upped what they were doing to 50 megs. When you start to do this, it helps with reducing the price and allowing citizens to get better service. Um, so it is a worthwhile endeavor. And you know, for the other people, cities that have done this before that were pioneering, you know, I spoke to a lot of their CIOs um, mm-hmm. in Tennessee. I've spoken to his CIO. Him and I have talked Huntsville, Alabama. You know, we have talked um, to their CIO and the people in their organization that's done that. And it's a worthy cause. It's something that we need to do. And I shared a story. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm from a small island in the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago. I'm familiar. You uh, you denied us going to uh, the World Cup, I think, uh, the last time around. So, you know, I, yeah. I don't have the warmest feelings toward you. But <laughs> Well, the story I share is my mom came here with four of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's me and my four brothers. I'm the youngest out of four. And she had $200 in her pocket when we came up here, October 21st, 1979, um, was when we came here. We were poor. And what my mom did was she put us in summer programs where we did computer camps in the summer because they were free services that was offered by the school districts in the city. And I see providing internet connectivity as that same story as what we could do to this generation or some of that story that we need to do in this generation. And I will tell you, if it wasn't for that computer training right now, my two brothers are in the computer industry. One was um, as a manager at Brookdale Hospital in in New York City. And the other uh, worked for American Express. Uh, He subsequently has become a medical missionary. And there's me, who's the CIO of the city of Tucson. And the black sheep of the family, jokingly, is a neurosurgeon in Grand Rapids. (laughs) Right? And so... Providing services that helps people grow is how we get people 
to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. It's how we fuel the next generation of leaders in this country. And so I'm passionate about this because if someone didn't treat me or teach me about computers at a young age, I wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing with you today. Yes. And I think it's actually, and it's all the more important that you get them while they're kids. When you're curious, yeah. you're excited, you got that time to dive into it. If uh, if you're not giving kids opportunities when they're when they're young, um, then you miss them as adults, I think, too often. So hopefully agree with you. You know, think about it, right? I grew up in the inner city. I shared a story that when I went to PS11 in Brooklyn, New York, name dropped for 30 seconds. I went to school with a guy named Christopher Wallace, who eventually became the rapper Biggie Smalls. <laughs> right? That's the environment I grew up with mm-hmm. in. Some of those folks didn't survive, right? They didn't make it to 40. I made it because the investment that PS11 and that community in Fort Greene, Brooklyn made Mm -hmm. in some of the kids. My brothers made it because of that. And so this is just another way of giving that and getting the next generation out there. Is it Brooklyn, New York? No, but it's Tucson, Arizona. And I, I really appreciate the work you've done, not just for Tucson, but trying to make it so that lots of other cities can follow along, even if they don't have, you know, your technical background, that they can figure out how to make this work. They can form the right partnerships. They can do what has to be done. So thank you for that as well. It's my pleasure. And I always say this, um, if there is anyone that wants my help, I can't guarantee you I can give you as much time as you need. But if you email my executive assistant or her, Name is Pamela.Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, at TucsonAC.gov. She will try to figure out how to get me on the schedule, even if it's just for 30 minutes, just so I can provide some of the impact. uh, The stuff that I've learned along the way, I can show some of the slide decks that I use for the justification. Anything that I can do to help, I really just want to be able to help more people. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, man. Christopher, I really appreciate this. That was Christopher talking with Colin Boyce. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle's at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 459 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.